Well, please stand with me and turn in your New Testaments to Revelation 15. We'll read verses 1 through 4. And we will also read Joshua 9, uh, our sermon text for tonight. All right, Revelation 15, verses 1 through 4. Let's pray once again as we turn to God's word. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that you have spoken and not been silent. You have revealed yourself clearly to us in the scriptures, and we pray that you would give us uh, wisdom and insight and faith to receive what you're about to uh, proclaim among us in, this, in, in your word. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Revelation 15, 1 through 4. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, and also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name, standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God, the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. Amen. We're now going to turn to Joshua 9, see one example from the Old Testament of the nations coming in fear and glorifying the name of the Lord, the one true God. Joshua chapter 9. As soon as all the kings who were beyond the Jordan in the hill country and in the lowland all along the coast of the Great Sea toward Lebanon. The Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites heard of this. They gathered together as one to fight against Joshua and Israel. But when the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and to Ai, they on their part acted with cunning and went and made ready provisions and took worn-out sacks for their donkeys and wineskins, worn out and torn and mended, with worn-out patched sandals on their feet and worn-out clothes. And all their provisions were dry and crumbly. And they went to Joshua in the camp at Gilgal and said to him and to the men of Israel, We have come from a distant country, so now make a covenant with us. But the men of Israel said to the Hivites, Perhaps you live among us. Then how can we make a covenant with you? They said to Joshua, We are your servants. And Joshua said to them, Who are you and where do you come from? And they said to him, From a very distant country your servants have come, because of the name of the Lord your God. For we have heard a report of him and all that he did in Egypt and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to Sihon, the king of Heshbon, and to Og, king of Bashan, who lived in Ashtaroth. So our elders and all the inhabitants of our country said to us, Take provisions in your hand for the journey and go to meet them and say to them, We are your servants. Come now make a covenant with us. Here is our bread. It was still warm when we took it from our houses as our food for the journey on the day we set out to come to you. But now, behold, it is dry and crumbly. 
these wineskins were new when we filled them, and behold, they've burst. And these garments and sandals of ours are worn out from the very long journey. So the men took some of their provisions, but did not ask counsel from the Lord. And Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them to let them live. And the leaders of the congregation swore to them. At the end of three days, after they had made a covenant with them, they heard that they were their neighbors and that they lived among them. And the people of Israel set out and reached their cities on the third day. Now their cities were Gibeon, Kapirah, Beeroth, and Kiriath-Jearim. But the people of Israel did not attack them because the leaders of the congregation had sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel. Then all the congregation murmured against the leaders, but all the leaders said to all the congregation, We have sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel, and now we may not touch them. This we will do to them. Let them live, lest wrath be upon us because of the oath that we swore to them. And the leader said to them, Let them live. So they became cutters of wood and drawers of water for all the congregation, just as the leaders had said of them. Joshua summoned them, and he said to them, Why did you deceive us, saying, We are very far from you when you dwell among us? Now, therefore, you are cursed, and some of you shall never be anything but servants, cutters of wood and drawers of water for the house of my God. They answered Joshua, Because it was told to your servants for a certainty that the Lord your God had commanded his servant Moses to give you all the land and to destroy all the inhabitants of the land from before you, so we feared greatly for our lives because of you and did this thing. And now, behold, we are in your hand. Whatever seems good and right in your sight to do to us, do it. So we did this to them and delivered them out of the hand of the people of Israel, and they did not kill them. But Joshua made them that day cutters of wood and drawers of water for the congregation and for the altar of the Lord to this day in the place that he should choose. Amen. You can be seated. When we talk about the past, the easy way, which is really the lazy way, um, is to, to try to divide up history between the bad guys and the good guys. Uh, there are these uh, black hats over here and the white hats over there, and uh, people often tend to talk about the past as though the people with the white hats can do no wrong, and the people with the black hats can do nothing right. Uh, reality, of course, is, for the most part, a lot more complicated than that. And a wise and truthful approach to history, including Bible history, will recognize that complexity. Um, It will honestly acknowledge the errors, even of our heroes, as well as the virtues of people that we tend to think of as villains in history. Now, for the most part in Joshua so far, it's been pretty easy to divide the story up between the black hats and white hats, right? Between the good guys and the bad guys. Israel are the good guys. Jericho, well, that's the bad guys. Um, although, then you think about it again, well, it's actually not quite that simple. Because in Jericho, you have Rahab, the prostitute, who turns out to be a woman of very profound faith. And then on the other hand, you have Achan, who's an Israelite, part of this army of the Lord, and he gets 
grouped in with the Canaanites, and he's destroyed because he rebels against God. Um, here in chapter 9, that, that complexity that we've already gotten some hints of really thickens up um, in the story of the Gibeonites. Israel, in this chapter, really, really drops the ball. Um, not so much by rebelling against God outright, um, but there is a, a serious lapse of diligence uh, with some very, and wisdom with some very serious consequences. Um, but on the other hand, um, the black cats in this chapter, the Gibeonites, the Canaanite people, it's these lying Gibeonite uh, con artists who end up uh, giving the clearest testimony in this chapter to the sovereign power of God. It is they who end up experiencing, in verse 26, deliverance by the hand of Joshua. It's not what you'd expect. I'll give you an outline for tonight, and then we'll we'll look at all this a little bit more closely. So number one is going to be false pretenses. It's verses 1 to 15. Number two is going to be a dire dilemma, verses 16 to 21. And number three is going to be curse and blessing, verses 22 to 27. So false pretenses, a dire dilemma, and then curse and blessing. All right, so verses 1 through 3 to begin with. These verses show us uh, two contrasting responses to Israel's early victories in Canaan. So if a, if a foreign army is invading your territory, you have to decide. You have to decide, are you going to fight back or are you going to uh, sue for peace? See what terms you can get uh, to avoid a war. And in, in verses 1 and 2, most of the Canaanites opt to fight it out. Um, they start to assemble a, a very powerful alliance of Canaanite kings to resist Israel, and they're hoping that by banding together, uh, they might be able to succeed where Jericho and Ai failed individually. But then in verse 3, you see that there is one group of Canaanites who make a very different choice in the face of the Israelite invasion. I think this is a great example of... Um, Two contrasting images that we get in the Psalms uh, being lived out here. So, first of all, think about Psalm 2. Psalm 2 asks, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord. That's Psalm 2. But now think about Psalm 66. Psalm 66 describes a very different response to the power of God when it says, Say to God, how awesome are your, are your deeds, so great is your power that your enemies come cringing to you. That's more what's happening with the Gibeonites. However, the Gibeonites' fear of Israel and Israel's God uh, does not lead them here to um, an unconditional surrender. That's not what they're doing. Instead, they're, they're convinced that they're not going to be able to succeed by force. They're not going to be able to win a battle. But they try to make up for it then by fraud. They're hoping to trick Israel into promising peace with them uh, with the goal that maybe that way we can survive this conquest. Now, now that's um, pretty obviously on the surface. It's, it's obviously wrong. It is uh, it's deception. 
they are distorting the truth, lying to the people of God. And by their deception, then, they are exemplifying Canaanite morality, uh, which is throughout the Old Testament in stark contrast to covenant morality. Um, you say they're doing what comes naturally. They're living like Canaanites, which includes this <clears throat> Canaanite morality. They're bearing false witness, to put it in terms of the law of God. And in making this covenant, then, um, th- on false pretenses, they are, we could say, striking at the foundations of the kind of trust and loyalty that God's covenant with Israel is based on. Okay. On the other hand, even as we recognize the, the pretty blatant problems with what the Gibeonites are doing, we need to notice, on the other hand, how much truth they have actually grasped by this time. We need to see how, how keen these people's understanding of the power of God and his plan for Israel is. We've come, verse 9, from a very distant country. Well, that's a lie. But we've come, they say, because of the name of the Lord your God. Well, now that's true. They have come because of the name of the Lord Israel's God. They've come because they've heard what he's been doing. And I would argue that their desire to offer themselves as servants to Israel, in verse 11, and their desire to make a covenant to become vassals of Israel, I would argue that's a good desire. We wouldn't expect them to just be, okay, I guess our destiny is to be wiped out, so let's just accept that and get wiped out because that's... No, for them to be seeking a way to make peace with Israel and to be servants to Israel and to recognize we are going to be under Israel, that's a good desire. Deception's wrong, but the desire is right. So let's look then at Israel's response. The leaders of Israel, uh, Joshua leaders of the congregation under him. At first, they seem a little bit suspicious. Verse 7, uh, perhaps you live among us. You know, how, then how can we make a covenant with you? Uh, but their reservations uh, pretty much evaporate when they look, had take the superficial look at the evidence. They see the stale bread. They see the worn-out clothes and sandals and wineskins. All this is manufactured, of course. It's all a con uh, to convince them that they've come from really far away. And the Israelites fall for it hook, line, and sinker. Now, something to remember here, backing up a little bit, is that in Deuteronomy 20, um, God had told Israel that they were allowed to make peace with cities that they went to war against as long as they were outside the land of Canaan. So if Israel's at war against surrounding nations, they can make a covenant. Um, They don't have to destroy every city they fight against, but not the ones in Canaan. Thus you shall do to all the cities that are very far from you, which are not cities of the nations here, Moses said, but in the, in the cities of these peoples that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. In these cities you shall save alive nothing that breathes. And so apparently the Gibeonites had, had really done their homework, um, and they knew uh, somehow what Israel was and was not allowed to do in the conquest. Um, and... <clears throat> So when Israel is, is taken in by this deception, they make this covenant. Um, we should acknowledge then that they're not, they're not doing this as at other times in their history, in outright, an outright rebellion against God. They are under the impression, at least, uh, the wrong impression, that they are obeying Deuteronomy 20. That's what they think they're doing. 
But verse 14, of course, tells us where they went wrong when it says, so the men took some of their provisions, but what did they not do? They did not ask counsel from the Lord. I want to read to you a a quote from uh, Ralph Davis on this point that I thought was really good. He writes this. He says, we need not only the power of God to overwhelm our obvious enemies, but also the wisdom of God to detect our subtle enemies. It goes on, unfortunately, the church too often craves God's power while it ignores God's wisdom. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we will not carry everything to God in prayer, like the hymn says, right? Needless pain because we're not using the resources of wisdom that God's provided to us. I love uh, 2 Corinthians 2, verse 11, where Paul speaks of not being outwitted by Satan. For, he says, we are not ignorant of his designs. Satan is a deceiver. He's very clever. And the thing about deception that makes it so powerful is precisely the way that it masquerades as the truth. We are never more dangerous to ourselves or to other people, to one another, than when we're convinced that we're doing something right that is, in fact, wrong. And the surest way for that to happen is to start with um, the self-deception that, well, this I can handle on my own. This I can figure out. I'm so confident in my instincts in my wisdom, that I I don't need to hold it up to any other standard. I don't need to hold it up to the straight line of the word of God. I don't need any kind of uh, counsel. Um, And the fact is, as God's people, no matter how mature we are, no matter how well we know God's word, we've always got to come back and seek counsel from the word of God and to use the sources of wisdom that God has provided for us. And we must never, ever think that we have somehow grown past that need because that's when we're going to make a classic blunder like this one. Well, you can see, starting in verse 16, how Israel's failure to ask counsel from the Lord uh, leads to what we're calling a dire dilemma. It doesn't take them long to realize, wait a second, (laughs) they've realized they've been taken in, that the Gibeonites actually live right around the corner, well, three days' journey. Um, and then it says, but the people of Israel didn't attack them because the leaders of the congregation had sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel. Look at how verse 18 goes on then. This is significant, the way this is put, when it says, then all the congregation murmured. They murmured against the leaders. Now, that is not a good sign when you start to see the people of Israel murmuring. It's lending this intensity. It's connecting this moment to other perilous moments in Israel's history where things have gone terribly wrong. It's the same word that's translated throughout Exodus and Numbers as grumbling. Same word. And it always comes up at moments when Israel is at its most rebellious, at their most discontented, and that grumbling typically leads to some kind of severe judgment from God. Um, uh, Most significantly for this context, (coughs) Israel grumbles or murmurs against Moses and Aaron in Numbers 14 
when they refused to go up and take the land after the bad report from the spies. This is 40 years ago. And we've seen this connection before in Joshua, right? This big question keeps coming up. Now that Israel is starting the conquest of the land, finally, 40 years later, are they going to make the same mistake again? Are they going to rebel again, or are they going to do things differently this time? Are they going to succeed by God's grace in completing the conquest? And once again, that's being thrown into jeopardy, thrown into question, as they murmur once again, now against their leaders. And it throws up that question, what's going to come of this impossible-seeming dilemma that's before them, that these leaders have created for them? If they let the Gibeonites live, well, they'll be violating Deuteronomy 20, where it says, destroy all the Canaanites without exception. But if they do that, well, they'll be breaking the covenant that they just made in the name of the Lord, which is a sacred oath that they've taken. What they end up deciding, and and I, I think that the historian would have us take this to be the right decision under the circumstances, what what they end up deciding is that they have to honor their covenant. And they they realize now that they ought not to have made it, but now that they have made it, that covenant is binding. Maybe a good analogy, if that's hard to kind of make sense of, why couldn't they just break the promise, especially since it was made under false pretenses? Maybe a good analogy for this is when Paul says in the New Testament that we're not supposed to be unequally yoked with unbelievers, right? And so a Christian shouldn't marry a non-Christian. It's being unequally yoked. But if a Christian is deceived or carried away by emotion and they and they do so, they disobey God and they do marry a non-Christian, well, what's their responsibility then? Is it to end that marriage? Is that what's obedient to God? No. Their duty for the rest of their lives is to live faithfully in that marriage, even though it will likely involve many burdensome difficulties. Um, but they should keep that covenant even though they shouldn't have made it in the first place. But now they can move forward um, in repentance and looking for God's grace in it. Uh, Clarify one thing. That's not to say that there are never promises that we shouldn't keep. For example, we must never keep a promise to commit sin. And a good example of that is is the story of Jephthah in Judges. when he should not have kept his promise to sacrifice the first thing that came out of his house. And he did, and it was a great tragedy. He should not have kept that oath. Although he also shouldn't have made it in the first place. Now, figuring out the difference um, can be difficult, can require wisdom, godly counsel outside our own heads. But I think that this example here in Deuteronomy 9, set side by side with the example of Jephthah, can help us to evaluate those questions about our commitments and to to help us grow to be the kind of people that Psalm 15 describes when it says he swears to his own hurt and does not change. We keep our oaths even at great cost to ourselves. Keep our word even when it hurts. Well, moving on, let's, let's look finally at the impact all of this ends up having on the Gibeonites. And that leads us to the final section, which is curse and blessing. <clears throat> um, I've talked to a number of you who share our family, our, and he's in my appreciation for the TV detective, Adrian Monk. He has these hyper-keen powers of observation uh, that make him a great detective, but he can't turn it off, and so it makes the rest of his life a misery. <laughs> um, 
And whenever somebody compliments him on what a genius he is, his classic line is always, well, it's a gift and a curse. And what I think is really interesting about this last section is that um, Gibeon is described within the space of a few verses as first being cursed, but then very shortly after as being delivered as a result of their encounter with Israel. Verse 23, Joshua says, Now therefore you are cursed. Some of you shall never be anything but servants, cutters of wood and drawers of water for the house of my God. But then you look down at verse 26. So he did this to them and delivered them out of the hand of the people of Israel, and they did not kill them, which otherwise would have been their destiny along with the other inhabitants of the land. What this suggests to us is that the curse of verse 23 is not an absolute total curse. It's not the same curse as rests on the kings, who in verses 1 and 2 are, are even now assembling, mustering their armies in an alliance to make war against Israel. You know, uh, Matthew Henry, I think, gives us very good insight here by pointing us back to a very particular curse. Back in Genesis chapter 9, the curse on Canaan, the son of Ham. You remember what Noah says there? Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. Uh, that's a curse pronouncing not destruction, but servitude. And that's the kind of curse that's being talked about in verse 23. The grand irony, and for Gibeon, the blessed irony of this chapter is that in that very curse, that opportunity, really, to be woodcutters and water carriers for the house of God instead of being devoted to destruction like the rest of the land, that very curse actually is their deliverance. See, their service now to God's people and to God's house, which is a very special kind of service, means that they're being spared from being wiped out, which is otherwise would have happened to them. And in fact, if you kind of are questioning how favorably I'm casting this, all you need to do is look at where Gibeon and the Gibeonites come up later in Old Testament history. A couple places in particular. Um, There's an immediate impact in chapter 10, very next chapter, where Israel actually comes to Gibeon's defense. All the other kings are going to attack Gibeon. Joshua is going to go to the defense of Gibeon, and in God's providence, that's going to be the way that God gathers all the Canaanite armies into one place so that Israel can defeat them all at once. But I was thinking beyond that, beyond Joshua, in 2 Samuel, something we find out that Saul did that was wrong is, Saul tried to break this covenant arrangement. He tried to exterminate the Gibeonites. And in 2 Samuel, um, uh, uh, we find that God brings covenant discipline on Israel because of Saul breaking this covenant. And David um, arranges to be able to give the Gibeonites justice in order for that covenant curse to be lifted from God's people. But what's even more amazing, I think, is if you fast forward way into Israel's future, all the way to the other side of the exile in Babylon, where the faithful remnant returns, and in Nehemiah they are rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem, guess who you find there shoulder to shoulder with all of God's people rebuilding the wall? It says, and next to them repaired uh, Melatiah the Gibeonite. 
and Jadon the, the Maranathite, the men of Gibeon and Mitzpah. So it seems that this service in God's house led ultimately to the Gibeonites really being enfolded in a special way in a very close relationship with Israel that endures in that faithful remnant returning from the exile. So, see, when you first read this chapter, first impulse is to just see these Gibeonites with black hats and say, those crooked, lying, cheating Gibeonites, no wonder they get cursed. And they are lying, cheating Gibeonites. There's no doubt about it. But, but what a curse this is. The real story of this chapter is the way what Gibeon deserves... And even the curse that they undergo gets completely upended in the end by the utterly unexpected and sovereign grace of God to these people. So yes, the Gibeonites exemplify Psalm 66. So great is your power, God, that your enemies come cringing to you. I think, really, they also end up exemplifying the sentiment of another very, very different psalm, Psalm 84. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. That's Psalm 84, and saying, I'd rather have a humble position of service close to God. I'd rather do that than stay grouped in with his enemies. And that's very much what Gibeon gets to experience her here. It's a curse, and it's also a gift. When the Lord Jesus was born, the Lord Jesus was entering into a world under the curse, right? the curse that we all deserve, the curse that we all share. Well, Jesus didn't deserve it, right? But he did share it. And in doing so, Jesus was exemplifying from the moment of his birth what he was, would later describe in Luke 22 when he said, but I am among you as one who serves. And Jesus' whole life and his whole ministry was conveying to his disciples the message that the way to the blessings of the kingdom of God is the way of service in the kingdom of God. And so what looks maybe like a curse to the world, uh, a world that's obsessed with power and self-advancement, is, is actually God's pathway of supreme blessing and power in disguise. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant, Jesus said, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. See, to be a servant of God and of God's people is actually what it looks like to be truly free. And why is that? How can that be? It's not just because of Jesus' example of service. It's because of the content of what Jesus was actually doing as a servant, what he was doing for us as he served by giving his life for us. Whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That is, to take the ultimate curse, the curse of destruction, like fell on the rest of Canaan, to take that curse on himself so that we could experience service in God's kingdom as a gift, 
as a blessing. Like the Gibeonites, as a deliverance. Jesus took the curse so that we could have the blessing. And he came to make his blessing flow far as the curse is found. So to sum up the message of this chapter for us as God's people, let's remember as we go from here, first that there are two ways to respond to the overwhelming power and authority and sovereignty of God. One is to assemble in rebellion against him, shake our fists, rage against his authority, and try to resist it, which will always be in vain. The other way is to do like the Gibeonites, to come nearer. There's a wonderful scene in C.S. Lewis's Prince Caspian where uh, there's this dwarf named Trumpkin who is a, a classic skeptic. He doesn't think that Aslan, the, the Christ figure, really exists. But he finally one day comes face to face with Aslan, and he can't deny it anymore because there he is, and he's absolutely terrified. But Lewis says this, he says, he did the only sensible thing he could have done. That is, instead of bolting, he tottered towards Aslan. What a great picture of the call of the gospel. When we realize who God is in all of his sovereign, holy glory. But instead of running away, instead of putting up our fists, we totter toward him in all of our weakness. And he receives us in his grace. So let's pray. Our Father in heaven, I give you thanks for this very complex story of some very wicked people doing very evil things and receiving a curse, but a curse that by your grace doesn't end as a curse, but as deliverance for them. Lord, we're so thankful that Jesus has taken the ultimate curse we deserve on himself so that we could experience instead the, the joy of being your servants. We would rather be doorkeepers in your house than have a high position anywhere else. And Lord, we ask, Lord, then that you would um, lead us as your people to serve you faithfully, relying on your wisdom as much as we desire your power, uh, as we seek to Live as faithful servants of the Lord Jesus Christ and all that you've called us to as individuals and families and as a congregation of your kingdom. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.